Welcome to the Critical Media Studies Podcast. We're your hosts, Mike Rapici and Barry Falk. Hi, Michael. How are you doing this evening? This Barry, is the broadcast. I'm doing well. Welcome to another uh, After Dark episode. Another After Dark episode of Critical Media Studies. And we're here uh, tonight to talk about Susan Sontag's 1977, well, a portion of her uh, 1977 book called On Photography. Um, and this particular chapter is the opening chapter of On Photography, and it's called In Plato's Cave. Um, a little bit of scene setting or table setting. Susan Sontag was a very uh, influential and prolific um, kind of promoter of the arts, a critic and promoter of the arts, dabbler of the arts, very eclectic in her artistic and her artistic takes taste a kind of cheerleader for the avant-garde in literature um and i guess also in politics a kind of cheerleader in the 60s like one of the things that she was doing is sort of translating um world writers to an anglophone reading audience and these writers would often be well, they almost uniformly were cutting edge. And oftentimes these were writers who had just received an, a sort of English translation. And there Sontag was sort of promoting their books. And it's kind of cutting edge. I mean, just sort of describing the philosophical outlook. I would say that this was sort of cutting edge experimental literature that she was a, her critical, she was one of those critics who, thought she was uh, an interpreter and conveyor of the most experimental currents in world literature. That was kind of her critical mission. And then in 1977, she, from time to time, she would take on philosophical as opposed to literary and cultural subjects. Um, so this is a little bit uh, off her sideline. She was also a novelist, I should say, and, and probably she would have defined herself as a novelist mainly. But uh, this is a little bit off of her bailiwick, but there are, and we might, we might get into this in our, uh, as a side note in our discussion, there are some advanced avant-garde ideas about photography that come up in here. References to our favorite Walter Benjamin, References to Roland Barthes, uh, two figures that we have also discussed on critical media studies. And so here, too, she's being a conveyor of um, experimental ideas, non-conventional ideas on the subject. But this is uh, closer to a monograph. A lot of her stuff isn't like a monograph, but this is kind of close to a monograph on the subject of on photography. And this particular, and, and, and with I, that's probably more than enough table setting. Let's get to the, let's get to the chapter itself. And and first thing we should mention is the title. The title of her introduction introduction to her book is called On Plato's Cave, and that's because there is a surprising and maybe it's good that I mention. I hope it's, hope maybe I can save some of my excessive table setting by mentioning this, that um, readers in 1977 wouldn't necessarily have expected Susan Sontag to be opening with a nod toward Plato. Mm -hmm. And even more so, if she is going to reference Plato, uh, you would think that she is going to be like most modern thinkers and post-Nietzschean thinkers. It's going to be a criticism of Plato for getting philosophy wrong. Our other... Mm -hmm. Uh, old friend Martin Heidegger, of course, said famously or infamously that, you know, what I'm doing in philosophy, I'm going to have to invert everything that Plato did. So one would have expected uh, in Plato's cave, one would have expected Sontag to follow suit. What's interesting about this is that the nod to Plato is not surface. Um, that, that one of the reasons why she frames her project and opens her project on photography with the invocation to Plato is because in a very real sense, 
She is in fundamental agreement with Plato on one controversial idea, which is that appearances of reality is not necessarily a knowledge of the appearances of reality is not necessarily a knowledge of reality itself. And with that, maybe we should talk about, because it's important to understand where she goes to in her um, argument about photography, it's probably important for us to talk a little bit about the platonic source. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think that it's, um, the, the, I wouldn't say so much that she's taking up the allegory of the cave necessarily for the same reasons that Plato wrote it, though. I think that's important. Uh, sure, you know, sure. <clears throat> he obviously has... Um, a political agenda, which I'm not, I don't, I don't think she's trying to, she's not, she's not espousing the, not. the philosopher King so much, but right. so um, the allegory of the cave comes from book seven of Plato's Republic. And as you had said, it really, as she's looking at the convergence between Plato and Sontag really lies in the distinction between representations of a moment and then the reality of that moment. And so, you know, just to sort of quickly gloss the allegory of the cave in the event that uh, listeners aren't familiar with it, it posits a situation where there are a series of prisoners in a cave chained and facing a wall. And the only thing that they can see are the shadows coming for, uh, you know, shadows cast on the wall in front of them from a fire based on things that are happening behind them, which they can't see. And so their complete, their, their understanding of reality or of what's going on beyond them, behind them is derived from their understanding of these shadows. And they understand the shadows to be the real. And the story posits that one of them gets loose and goes up to the surface. And at the surface, he's able to experience the world at no remove, right? Like he, he's able to actually see things as they are, as opposed to a reflection of shadow. And I know other philosophers have picked this up and questioned whether or not that's a thing, but for, for Plato's purposes and for Sontag's yeah. purposes, right. he is able to experience sunlight directly. He's able to experience the world around him directly. And after he adjusts, he goes back down into the cave, excited to free his fellow prisoners and have them experience what he's experienced and rather than taking him up and leaving the cave they ridicule him they resist leaving they refuse to believe what he has seen and um you know this this gets it so so that's 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 the cave as sontag is using it in regards to photography this idea and i, I guess I'll, I'll sort of just spill one of the theses of the 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 chapter out here of Sontag, now you're sort of yes. morphing yeah, I'm sorry. into yeah. Like yeah. where Sontag is going to, where she takes up this argument. Yeah, and, and and one of her arguments is that photography presents us, and we can, I'll put this down as just to sort of cement what Plato's, what she's doing with Plato, and then sure. we can pick up as you want. But one of her arguments here is that when you have a photograph that is analogous to the representation of something on the wall, that it is not the same thing as the moment that it would purport to represent that there's a diff there's a distinction between the image and the reality and that we as viewers mistake the image for the reality um so the you know an experience i might use for example is like a picture of my kid is not the same thing as my kid um it is a picture of but we have we we live in a world that is so dominated by images that we either cease to make the different, cease to differentiate between the two, or in some cases become unable to make that differentiation. And we just see the image and take it as the thing that it represents, that, it, that sure. it is representing. So that's, that's, I think, the reason for Plato and um, Plato's arguments about, you know, the failures of democracy uh, and everything else. We can leave to the side and we'll go. Yeah, forward. yeah, right, right. But but can I speak? Uh, I don't want to uh, interrupt yeah, yeah. you. No. Uh, can I just speak um, and elaborate on that on the last point you made? Because I'm just going to elaborate on the sim. You you've already started doing this, and now I'll just 
take it another step. You're suggesting a kind of baseline of similarity, a baseline between the two essays and the similarity in terms of approach. It's also a kind of similarity in Plato's, there's also a kind of basic similarity between Plato's critique, the form of Plato's critique, and the form of Sontag's critique. So I'll see if I can articulate the similarity. Here's what I mean. And this is one of the reasons why I think, you know, you're right. And, and we're going to try to do this throughout. Um, although we're talking about structural similarities between Plato and Sontag, uh, you already gave us, Michael, you have already given us the, the you know, the necessary caveat that that doesn't mean a similitude, you know, a similarity of philosophical approach. There are divergences in their philosophical approach and their philosophical program. But the structure of their critique and their analysis of the world in which they inhabit is strikingly similar. So what's what's the similarity? So for Plato, what Plato's critique assumes is that there is the possibility. There is a normative relationship that people have to their world. And there is a correct, a more correct response of the, in Plato's case, of the philosopher. The philosopher has same relation to the world, but they have, for lack of a better word, a critical distance on the world picture that most of the citizens of the Republic in Plato's case, most of the citizens don't have. So there is a kind of implicit critique that the philosopher has a knowledge of reality that is fundamentally different from the knowledge of reality um, that other people claim to have. And in fact, basically in Plato's schema, the philosopher sees reality more truly than the cave dweller prisoner, quote unquote. In fact, the cave dweller is not aware of themselves as a cave dweller, right? Um, it's from the philosopher, philosophers and from the philosophic perspective that the cave dweller is a prisoner of their worldview. So there's a kind of fundamental uh, hierarchy of values and views in Plato um, that looking at, you know, thinking your world is the world of the shadow painting, uh, that's kind of not right. <laughs> There's another reality besides that. Right, right. So that is, that that kind of stance, that there is a more critical approach on uh, on the world, on the world as you perceive it. There is a more valid epistemological view of the world as you perceive it. Then, and this view is different and superior to the view of the other quave dwellers. Without sort of, you know, that that's obviously a hierarchical view. I, Sontag is, of course, much more conscious that it is a hierarchical view than Plato, who pretty much embraces the hierarchy for different reasons. But I think Sontag is like Plato in this very basic, and we're talking about the similarities. And here's where I think the big similarity is. You're talking about the photographic image and the tendency to think about photographs as reality. Um, Sontag, Sontag feels, and she's critical of this view in the same way that Plato is critical of the view of the standard view of the cave dwellers of their universe, of the cave dwelling universe. Sontag's essay and her book, <clears throat> fundamentally, you know, the position she's trying to inhabit is a critical position on the view that photographs give us access to reality. And the reason why she feels bound to <clears throat> inhabit this very different critical view is because she feels that for all of us, including the philosopher, including Sontag herself, this is the real similarity with Plato, that the default view of the world is not Sontag's view or Plato's view. Sontag, the, the default view of the world is the view of the cave dweller. Mm -hmm. So in Plato's, this is the real, I, to me, the core similarity. The core similarity is that for Plato, he realizes that even though he's articulating the difference between the philosopher and the non-philosopher, 
And obviously, he's on the side of the philosopher against the non-philosopher. And he wants, literally, the philosopher to descend back into the cave and convert them to the truth, right? You know, you have that kind of evangelical mission there. But on the other hand, Plato is very well aware that this is a minority view and that the world, that the default world picture is the shadow pictures rule. Likewise, that's that. I mean, I think that description of Plato, Sontag assumes she's writing in a, in a very closely parallel, um, a, a, a structure in, in a situation that structurally parallels Plato's, and that she assumes that for everyone, and I think Sontag would admit, even for her. So, you know, she, she is criticizing, especially in this book and especially in this chapter. Uh, she lays out and illustrates some of the specific reasons. She gives some very specific and very pointed and very, I think, compelling arguments about how we mislead ourselves when we take photographic representations of the real for the real. So she's aware of that. But also, and, and you know, there is this um, passage that, you know, if we have time, I'll refer to it later. There are many passages, certainly in the book, if you read the entire book, but even in this chapter, there are these poignant moments where she says, I'm a cave dweller too, where she understands like, you know, you, you sense that she really has to make some effort to wrench herself away from the photographic regime in order to attain this critical view. Because, yes, she wants to. She is insisting on the rightness of her position, rather mm-hmm, like play it. Mm-hmm. She feels she has a point and she wants to make an argument, but she understands the seductiveness of taking the photograph for the real. And many times, some of the most poignant parts in the in the in this particular chapter, she mentions how she deeply is affected and hypnotized by the power of photographic images. Well, part of that, I think is 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 just a, a kind of reckoning with reality you know absolutely i mean absolutely. if you think about it like absolutely. plato is well aware of the fact that when the prisoner returns to the cave the other prisoners are not going to want to come up with him right. and that refusal to come up to the surface is the exact same refusal to recalibrate our entire sense-making apparatus to make room for the distance between the image and a reality, right? It's not, and I I don't take this as a criticism to say, well, you know, people are lazy or people are stupid. I don't Mm -hmm. see that at all. It's more just an acceptance of the fact, one, that it's really damn hard, Mm -hmm. right? In addition to being difficult to do, it is a lot of work to do, right? It is just easier to say this is close enough. And I mean, it's it's not unlike in, in conversation saying, well, you know what I mean, right? This is one of those shortcuts. Shorthand. It's shorthand. Yeah, yeah it's, it, that, that just makes it. So I don't, I don't you know, I, I think that there's a reality that Sontag and, and Plato are, are just coming to terms with like, hey, this is going to be the way it is, right? That we can't reasonably it's it's a problem because it's not real right we're we're taking a facsimile of the real and misrep misunderstanding it um but i think that there's also just an awareness that this is a lot of work and it's very hard and people aren't going to do it especially in a world um that is so dominated by images i mean she makes multiple uh references to the fact that we live in a visual world and this is 77 right if you think about how screen centric the world is now and i'm probably getting ahead of us ourselves here but just how 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 visual the world is um you know we're we're it's that much more difficult to 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 distill or to to distinguish between the two i'm glad we got into this discussion thread because michael and i have been um i guess we had maybe more than our usual sort of pre-discussion of the of this essay before Mm -hmm before this particular recording. Um, And I don't think we really, or at least I'll say, I don't think I really registered the fact and and, uh, 
what we've just been talking about sufficiently, because I think it's a really important point. This is might be one of the important places where Sontag both identifies with Plato and Plato's predicament and also swerves because what Plato doesn't do, first off, I think it's worth saying, because you already touched on it, it's worth saying what Plato does do because in fairness to Plato, because Plato, because of his fealty and interest and obviously his, his entire philosophical system is about idealism or it's about the power of these ideals that are more, according to Plato, more real than reality. And so Plato, it's very easy to say he's an idealist and he doesn't have a pragmatic sense or a realist sense. But you just articulated, uh, when you read the allegory of the cave, one of the things that he, I mean, he seems very realistic about his, um, he has a very realistic sense of the, um, of the success rate of philosophy against the mainstream well, of his day, right? Yeah, well, he's also knows it's not going to make a huge dent. No, and he's also predisposed to be somewhat cynical about this, right? Like, yeah, yeah. they 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 did kill Socrates, so you, right. you know he's 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 not predisposed to be favorable. <laughs> okay, there's to this. that. <laughs> so, I forgot about that part. Yeah, that you know when 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 they're killing when they kill your guy, yeah, that, that's, that's, a that's probably something you're going to internalize, and it's going to make you a little bit more of a realist. That's but a different anyway, story. Though. It's worth it's worth saying, yeah. right? You know, for all of Plato's idealism, when you read the allegory, he's very realistic in our modern sense of the word realistic about the chances of philosophy, everybody becoming a philosopher according to his definition of it. Now, what? Um, so Sontag has that. But Sontag does one thing, and I think it's really important to mention before we say anything else about Sontag. I think it's really important to mention, even though she's criticizing the urge to this confusion that she argues is a confusion between uh, the photograph and reality, and this tendency that we have, this knee-jerk tendency we have to take a photograph of the real for the real, quote-unquote, itself. Despite all that, what she, you know, what Plato doesn't do is empathize with the view of the cave dweller, right? You know, he doesn't go and say, well, here's how the cave dweller, let me empathize a little bit with, you know, my time as a cave dweller. Plato wants to get past that. What Sontag does, and it's interesting, even in her book, that's going to be this critical reflection on the limits of photography, the strengths, but also the limitations, even here and in the setup for a book that's going to be a critique in a way, a philosophy of photography, um, a philosophical critique of uh, photography. Even there, she is all about, and, and this will be a through line throughout the whole book, She's on. she always admits how vulnerable she is, how often she is a quote-unquote cave dweller. And, and that implies exactly what I think, Michael, what you were saying, that takes effort to mm -hmm. achieve a critical distance or a critical stance on the to achieve to write this kind of study to think about it because you have to think against the grain mm -hmm. and it's hard to think against the grain and she often gives us what plato doesn't give like you know what does the cave dweller think um uh, there are moments in here where she says the shadow paintings are tremendously effective i was totally moved by them. they and in fact at some point she says our modern identity depends on the fact that's one of the marks of like it or not. So you can't undo it because like it or not, one of the things that make us modern is that we rely on photographs of events across the world. Sometimes we rely on photographs of the Holocaust in her example, in order to remind us of the, that it happened. Now mm -hmm. we, I'm not going to get into the, the Holocaust denying thing here. I just, this idea that, um, there are moments where a photograph is something reminding us of the reality of something, especially when it's painful and we want to deny the reality. Uh, that's one ways in which photographic regimes of truth, that's a kind of positive value to it. So, you know, uh, this is nuanced. I guess I'm just saying this is nuanced. Yeah, I think I think to, to sum it up so we can move on, the, sure. the, ar the argument is that the image is not the same as the thing it represents right and that is a problem 
but it is not a problem wholly devoid of merit. That there are things that the images do that are productive, but I think that where we need to go with this is to really now start to pick out, well, where are the problems and why are there problems? Because we are already preconditioned right. to understand right. photography as right. a representation of the real, so much so that it can stand in for the real, and that we, in taking this perspective, miss some of these problems. Absolutely right. Well, how about we do this in our remaining uh, episode? Let's talk about, so what it follows, uh, you know, we should say, I don't remember, I don't think there is, um, like she doesn't recount the allegory of the cave. We no, not at all. Readers, no, no, that's, 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 that's purely we're unpacking that. So for the benefit of the reader, in order to illuminate, uh, she, you kind of have to know the story that one that we've been retelling, because otherwise you don't really capture that. You, you can't really catch the logic of her argument, the structure of her argument. Right. So, that's so, so apologies to all the rhetoricians for sitting through the past 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but, but thanks for, oh, thank, but thanks go. all the same. Um, you know, you have fast forward and, you know, streaming. There's nobody's, all these nobody's fast forwarding okay. through this. Okay. Come on. Oh, but okay. So to anchor it and sort of to bring it to to both transition and just sort of advance things, um, what follows in the essay after the initial you know openings are a series of very pointed, uh, multi-form critiques of this tendency that we've been discussing uh, to take the photograph of the real for the real. Okay, I think we're going to pick. And Michael, you go first, right? Um, we're going to pick two <clears throat> moments, two particular moments of the critique that we think we're going to make them do double duty. So obviously, Sontag's purpose in this chapter is to make her critique of this regime of truth uh, that uh, has that we've constructed for ourselves uh, uh, using the invention, using the technology of photography. Uh, we're going to try and add something to that. We're going to talk about two moments of criticism, moments of critique, uh, two critical arguments. I mean, that's a, a simpler and a better, more plain way of saying it. We're going to point to two critical arguments that Sontag makes about photography. But we're what we're going to add to that, and I think in both cases, is we're going to consider whether or not this critique of the photographic regime of truth might be helpful in illuminating or whether it carries over into a discussion of the internet. Mm -hmm. So I have something I want to talk about having to do with her notion of the negative epiphany of the photograph. But Michael, I know you wanted to talk about her argument about nostalgia. Yeah. So her, her argument about nostalgia, I, I think is really interesting. And um, for, for a number of reasons. So let me, let me jump in and just read the, the, the brief passage that I'm referring to, and we can go from there. So this is on page 15 of the version I have. Um, I'm sure that's wildly useful to everybody out there, but here we go. Um, she if says- they're using Google and PDFs and pirating things, it's going to be very useful, page no, 15. <laughs> it's the first, the first Google place. Nobody would do that. <laughs> that's not the world we live in. She says, it is a nostalgic time right now, and photographs actively promote nostalgia. Photography is an elegiac art, a twilight art. Most subjects photographed are, just by the virtue of being photographed, touched with pathos. An ugly or grotesque subject may be moving because it has been dignified by the attention of the photographer. A beautiful subject can be the object of rueful feelings because it is aged or decayed or no longer exists. And so... I, I think that her, so the comment there is pretty straightforward, right? Um, that this ties, that the image has the ability to conjure up or to bring us back to a history that is gone, right? To a past that is no longer with us. And this is, I, I think, the wonderfully interesting thing about nostalgia is that it is a by its very nature, it's a fiction, right? It is something that does not exist. And if you double that, if you layer that reality 
over the problematic nature of the photograph that we've already teased out, right? That it is a representation. It is not the real that we mistake for the real. What you have is a tremendous amount of pathos here, right? We have these feelings evoked, these, these, these emotion, this emotional response for a time that is not, or a time or a place or a person or a subject, we'll say, that is not wholly consistent with the thing that is pulling those emotions from us, right? Um, so you are literally responding to a thing that does not exist. And the term, you know, this this came to me as we were talking early, Barry. I, I was thinking about the, the I believe it's Baudrillard, the, the simulacra, right? The 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 thing that conceals the real, but it's not the real itself. It's this, it's right. it's it's a fiction that we believe. Sure, it's an imitation of the real, a simulation of the real that we take for reality. Right, but it's a real that never really exists. Of course, of course. Right. And so the, but the problem point is we can't tell the difference for Baudrillard. I mean, that's where this is, this is, this is Sontag. Yeah. But, but, but that's the problem. And so if you, if you think about this, if, if we play this out a little bit, right, you have an emotional response to a thing that is not connected to what we think we're responding to. Okay. Um, it's very easy to, look at this and i've seen other people have taken up this argument and tie it directly to propaganda tie it directly to media manipulation and certainly those connections could be there i don't think sontag is arguing that uh photographs or images are propaganda or are manipulation i think that that's that, that that's a connection other people have made and i can see how that could be a thing but the the real concern for me in this is not necessarily that intent because that 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 places the how do I want to say this that 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 places agency elsewhere this 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 is more about how we're responding to these things but we are always going to be misguided which means and I'm going to do a little foreshadowing here right we are always going to want more we're always going to be left unsatisfied because you can never satisfy the emotional need with an absence. And that's ultimately- You can never OD, okay. So oh, I don't know that you, you might be able to OD on it. I mean, I, I think you could certainly break your- I was wondering your, about, go ahead, I'm sorry. Well, I was gonna say, I, I think you could certainly, you know, break your own heart over a reality that was never there um, or over, over a feeling that was never there, excuse me. Um, but the point is, the you you will never have satisfaction sure you will never achieve an emotional satisfaction because there's the thing that you think you're satisfying is always misplaced and so you know if if you i i don't, I don't know if it's if it, it, this might not be the right time to fast forward but why not let's try it um if you think about you know our interests on, on this podcast are so focused on internet culture and, and and modern media culture right if you think about the way that advertising or social media or the internet function right there's always this image this this reality that we chase and the solution to it is typically in the form of consumption that consumption is always going to be empty and that is going to just perpetuate the cycle of consumption and so it's easy to see how this works when you apply sontag's argument you know that that these are you know a la plato representations but not the real mm -hmm. i mean you, you you there's a string of interesting ideas in there i putting them together i kind of want to ask you a question related to because you you like i said you're you're connecting some interesting things here i'm going to put them together and you see if, I, i'm interested to see if you would agree with this formulation but i but i think i'm working with your formulation let's see so let's see what happens we'll see how it goes uh i think you kind of uh pushed um sontag into some interesting areas 
that are closer to our reality or contemporary reality than to her 1970s reality, but let's go with it. It sounds like you're saying, so it sounds like you're taking and building on Sontag's assertion that one of the potent drivers for photography, for making more photographic images, for the consumption and the production of photographic images, is the recording of a rea of a reality that you know is going to pass, or even the reality the the present reality. You know, you can get a photograph of the lack or the loss, uh, and that still can be nostalgia because you remember what used to be in that particular space. So even the photograph of an absent place can still have that sort of nostalgic value. I'm wondering whether or not, but you also say, rightly, I think, that nostalgia is this, that's a weird emotion that uh, in a way, because nostalgia is, predicated on loss, on a lot a primordial, primal loss, that in a way you can never, um, you can never get it back. And so that an urge for nostalgia will never be fulfilled. And in that way, it, it seemed to, it seemed also that you were linking that to the urge to consume in the same way that you don't consume something on the knowledge that it just consumes something. That means I'm done. Mm -mm. You always consume something knowing I just consumed something, but I'm probably going to be consuming more, maybe 10 times more in the coming week, right? You satisfy the urge, but the urge is never satisfied with consumption. So in a way, by harnessing nostalgia and consumption, there's something about the photography, the photographic process or a relation to photography that links consumption with nostalgia. I mean, that sounds like the most powerful heroine that has ever been made. Well, so and let's, go, is let's that, go. Is that is that kind of what you're thinking? Like there's this psychological it, complex? It that, is. It is. And, you know, I want to say the essay may be 45 years old. Right. I, I'm not a math person. I'm just going to go ahead and say it's 45-ish years old. Um, it is aged phenomenally well. And because of that motor. Because but let's let's let me let me, let me let me let me let me throw something else in here. Okay. Uh -oh. All oh, of you're this already discussion. Me by talking about heroin and consumption. No, 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 no. This is <laughs> we'll go somewhere scary. different. <laughs> this is to say nothing of the artificial intelligence. Huh. that generates images that look a whole lot like photographs of things sure. that absolutely never were never were you know but Far it's still but 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 I bring that Far up I bring that up not to derail us and not to not to distance us from her argument yeah. but my point is that her argument works well enough to still handle that right we can see an image that was never even taken and still connect that to a reality in our minds that will provoke an emotional response, mm -hmm. right? So the idea, like if the idea that this is not real seems preposterous, you don't have to look any further than artificial intelligence to see the absolute legitimacy of what she's saying. Sure. You know, sure. And, it, and it works in absolutely any context. And that's the thing that makes this so incredibly impressive. It's not like we're sitting here saying this is true for, for pictures of bowls of oranges. You know, this, this functions in every single context that we will literally impose our own nostalgic response sure. to, to any image. Sure. And the ones that we can't immediately connect with and configure a response to are are, are instantly ignored and replaced with something like that because we are absolutely bathed in images. There is there is right. never a moment where we don't have something to and see. She's very aware of that. Yeah, right? yeah. Would, to live in the age of the photographic image where that's dominant, that means you're living in uh, this world of multiple constant a constant stream of images. 
a multiplicity of images. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, one comment about your AI example. I mean, I was about to say this changes Sontag's argument, but I wonder if it does. I, because I, what, I don't, what, what I don't happens, it... yeah, I, it may not, which is in a, a further testament. But, but in the AI, uh, in the AI example, the fact that it's real, um, the fact that it's real, it's the, the proof that it's real is that it's an image, right? Not real, that there's real, a reference out it's, there. It's the real. The proof that it's real is that it's an image that you're looking at. And that's why it's is become the truth because it's an image. It's Not real it as it's real as an artifact, it's right? Real as an artifact. But that artifactiness of it. Yeah. creates well, a creates aspect. a nostalgic history somehow sure that sure. is not a reality right that's totally a fiction that's totally a fiction that's so wonderful <laughs> this is such i i love this essay this that is such a wonderful insight but um hardly any escape from this kind of regime from the cave if this is a cave this is plato's new cave that's what Sontag is suggesting that the photographic, the world of the photograph that we inhabit, um, that prompts the nostalgic feelings that you're talking about. And here's the thing. This yeah. world is a version of Plato's cave. Now she's going to say, we still need to get out of the cave. But, but you know what? Get out but here's the cave? thing. Here's the thing. You know, the saying, if this is wrong, I don't want to be right. You don't want to be okay. right. It's, it's, it's not unlike, and I hate making this reference because I feel like we make it so often. But again, it's testament to other just amazing art is it's sort of like that scene in the Matrix where the guy's sitting there cutting the steak up and eating it and talking about how wonderful, sure. you know, it's it's like you can understand why right. there's such a difficulty um, leaving the cave. Why? Like nostalgia might be empty calories, but by God, it provokes that kick for us. But it tastes good. I know the steak isn't real. That Matrix moment is a very interesting, philosophically rich moment because he does say, I know this I don't isn't care, real. But I don't care. I know this isn't real, but it's it's a damn good steak. Yeah. And that's I think that's that's it's where a damn good simulacra, right? It's All right. So there's my simulacra. nostalgia bit. There's there's my um, nostalgia bit. Well, I'll 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 go to my um, and let me iterate my purpose so I remember it as I, I go to this uh, this anecdote here or this passage in uh, Sontag's argument, page 19 in my PDF, um, going on to page 20. Uh, there are a lot of arguments critical or designed to make us criticize and more self-aware about the photographic regime of truth that we all inhabit, including that we all, including Sontag inhabit. Um, and then one of my missions talking about this passage is I'm going to talk about her critique of photography, but I'm also trying to connect it to like you did, Michael, thinking about the ways in which images still work uh, to promote nostalgia and to help us consume and to ease the consumption of images and how that might be true, you know, even in 2023, let alone in 1977. So I'm going to read this passage where, and I'm, I'm going to try to do something with her term of negative epiphany. And uh, I'm doubly glad to be talking about this passage because this is a spectacular example of something we were talking about earlier, the moments where Sontag um, you know, I'm writing a book critical of photography, but I want to raise my hand and tell you that I'm a cave dweller too. And that in fact, perhaps the genesis of this book, I take this anecdote to be kind of a biographical confession of why she wrote the book and why she's attracted to this subject in the first place. Uh, the, that she was kind of traumatized at a very young age uh, by photographs. Now, mm -hmm. which aren't reality, but they're enough of a representation of reality that they traumatized young, poor, young Susan Sontag when she was in the San Fernando Valley in California before she went to Berkeley and then onward to Chicago and then became a superstar in New York. Okay. She uses this term negative epiphany, and I'm wondering whether or not this term 
and this complex, in the same way Michael is thinking about nostalgia as a complex that still might be regnant and you know, still might be applicable in the world of images that we encounter in digital culture. I'm wondering whether or not the negative epiphany names a psychological complex that that still relevant. Okay, let me read this passage. It's beautiful anyway, so let's get to it. And her words that are nice, beautiful. Uh, photographs shock insofar as they show something new, novel. Unfortunately, the anti, and this is a moment of critique here before she says she's a cave dweller. Uh, and I mentioned this, I'm slowing down here simply because this is going to give the reader listener an idea of the essay that we're not talking about, because a lot, there's a lot of arguments here where uh, a lot of places here where she makes this point about photographs, that it's very easy for the photographic image to desensitize. One of the, one of the pernicious effects, one of the reasons why we need to criticize photography as a truth regime is that the, she says at various points in the essay, she hammers this point home that there's a pernicious effect in her mind of photographic images, repeated exposure to photographic images of horrible violence, atrocities, doesn't matter how unpleasant they are. At first we're shocked, but then afterwards we're less shocked. And that basically we end up acclimating ourselves and accepting the horrible reality that the photograph, you know, at first photograph produces the term that she's going to use in a moment, and I'll read it in a second, the negative epiphany. We realize we have a new view of reality. And guess what? That new view of reality is indeed the real. It's a horrible truth of reality that perhaps we would never have known if it wasn't for the, let's use the word, pharmacon of, photo of photography, right? It really is the real. But here's the problem with this and why she wants to critique photography nonetheless, that the problem with this is that she also feels that that shock wears off. The negative epiphany necessarily runs down. And what is the result is we become inured and more complacent and ultimately accepting of even the most unpleasant situation. You want to say something and then I'll read I do. I want to clarify something or ask you to clarify something. Sure. Sure. Is it, that the negative epiphany, it is not the real, it is a real. And I think that it's sure. important okay. to distinguish okay. between the two, right? Because okay. for, for two okay. reasons, for two reasons. But it's not a represent, it's not just, okay, I buy all that, but let me say this. It is not just a representation of the real. That's what I meant by saying it's the real. I like your qualification. It, it well, it's I, not just a representation. Yeah, and I don't want to be, I'm not trying to be pedantic here. The reason I okay. make the distinction yeah. is because the after effect is different. If you lived through oh, the atrocity that yeah. that image yeah. represents, you will never walk away from that. If you see that image, it will scar you. But that that's, scar will heal via rip for the exact reasons that the reality would never go away because that scar heals that's how? The perversely, perversely <laughs> by showing you more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm very, I'm very glad you made that clarification. That's really important. So it's 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 still yeah, a yeah, representation. That's really important. But but I and what I think this does, and I, I don't mean to 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 talk too much here. I'm sorry, but. It speaks again to the power of nostalgia. We wouldn't think of these traumatic images as being, you know, nostalgic, but the pathos is still the same in the sense that it 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 has an effect. So I just I just wanted to to clarify that one moment because I think it's significant. I'm, re I'm really happy you did because I I think Sontag would be very proud that you made that claim because. Um, that is the difference between the real and the photographic real or representation of the real yeah. is that the scarring of the real, well, scarring of the real can effing kill you. That's one yep. difference mm -hmm. How about that. Or it certainly has the power to haunt you for the rest of your days. Right. Yeah. And that's not to say that the image can't do the same. 
but it would do the same for because of a different reaction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, no, I, I thank you very much for making that interruption. I'll continue now just for let's get into the passage and then I'll, I'll try and I'm trying to keep this under control. We don't want to have a marathon. We don't want to have a marathon session. I love this. Essay. Okay. Let's go back. Uh, but we like this essay. So there, I guess we're prolix when we love uh, photographs shock insofar as they show something novel. Unfortunately, the ante keeps getting raised partly through the very proliferation of such images of horror. One's first encounter with the photographic inventory of ultimate horror is a kind of revelation, revelation of reality, right? I added that word. The prototypically modern revelation, and here's the term that I want to play with a little bit, a negative epiphany, colon, negative epiphany. For me, here we have, like I said, I, I read this as, I think this is really interesting passage because I think here's where she's telling you, here's why I wrote the book. When I was 14, I got messed up by looking at these photos. I didn't expect it to happen. I was just thumbing through a book, but it kind of scarred me. Um, so for me, it was photographs of Bergen, Belson, and Dachau, which I came across by chance in a bookstore in Santa Monica in July. She dates it. I love that. She dates it in July 1945. Nothing I have seen. Interesting that she makes, Michael, especially given your last comment, interesting that she has this in, this phrase in between hyphens, start the sentence again. Nothing I have seen, dash, in photography or in real life, dash, ever cut me as sharply, deeply, instantaneously. Indeed, it seems plausible to me to divide my life into two parts. Before I saw those, photo those uh, photographs, I was 12. And after, though it was several years before I understood fully what they were about, what good was served by seeing them? They were only photographs of an event I had scarcely heard of and could do nothing to affect, of suffering I could hardly imagine and could do nothing to relieve. When I looked at those photographs, something broke. Some limit had been reached, and not only that of horror, I felt somewhat, I felt irrevocably grieved, wounded, but a part of my feelings started to tighten. Something went dead. Something is still, I mean, this is kudos to her. It's very powerful. Something is still crying. So I, this is a really big moment for a lot of different reasons in her text. But I want to sort of move to this idea. Did you want to make a comment? I want to now sort of make a comment about negative epiphany. No, and, I think and the internet. Yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm going to try to make a connection between what she's talking about here and the internet. Yeah, the only thing I would say about this, and you're going to get there. I'll keep it brief. Is just that you know, if if you think back to Plato's cave and the images on the wall, right? It is tempting to think of those images as cheap facsimiles, as you know, uh, sure. they're not shadow you, images. Like, yeah, and, yeah, and as we see here, and and I'm sure everybody listening to this ha has their own version of this those images are still profoundly powerful in the right moment. That's all. So the, the, the fact that it's not real uh, in the, in the sense of experiential in, you know, in the flesh um, does, does not necessarily mean that they are um, any, in any way diminished in terms of their ability to affect. Well, now uh, dear listener or dear viewer or both uh, I'm going to do a thought experiment and or Dr. Rapici didn't know my thought experiment. So this is going to be new to him here. We're going to have a spontaneous moment on critical media studies. I'm, I'm going to do a thought experiment and Dr. Rapici is going to comment on it. And that's going to bring us to our either a shuddering close, an exciting close. I'm a little, I'm a little apprehensive about this, but let's, well, you should be. let's well, go. You should be. Are you drinking? I hope you're drinking. Okay. Indeed. Um, I want to. I want to actually start with. Uh, I want to start my comment by refer referring to that last sentence that I read. I felt, as a result of seeing these photographs, I felt irrevocably grieved, wounded. But part of my feelings started to tighten. Something went dead. So that's the experience, the phenomenology, as it will, as as it were, of the 
negative epiphany brought on by photography. Now, here's my thought experiment, Michael. I'm going to, or rather, here's my hypothesis. My hypothesis is what she describes as the negative epiphany and that she ties to the photographic image. I want to say this is how you and I and our dear listeners slash viewers, that's how they experience the news now, that the news as mediated by digital culture is an endless cycle. Shades of what you were saying earlier in a different modality with nostalgia and all that stuff and the repetitive nature of nostalgia and consumption. I wonder if, and I'm in the same way that I really, really, really don't want to make light of pictures of Dachau, I'm not going to make light of this other real life referent here of shootings in the, you know, mass shootings in, in the news. But I wonder if our reaction to the latest news and the latest images of mass shootings. And, I, and in fact, I'm, I'm taking something of a liberty here, but I think I'm doing it with reason. It's a reasonable liberty to take. I would even say that the news headline, the news headline that we read in our little phones, in miniature images and the miniature screens in our phones, I think that's a kind of photographic image of the news. In a way, you don't need a photograph to accompany the photograph of the headline that you, you get in the, your the, smartphone. The right? lead, the lead. The lead, right? So, well, these in the sense that these are signs, right? That are inst. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So, okay. So, I'm almost done with my my hypothesis, my formulation, or my comparison. I'm I'm, I'm thinking that our response to news, especially negative news, especially news of the horrific or the shocking, I think it's a 24/7. What's different, really, is the 24/7 cycle. Shout out to Jonathan Crary. Somewhere, but she's but she's off his lawn. She's still a part of this, though, by virtue of the fact that she. And I don't mean to interrupt, but she makes mention multiple times about the fact that we are totally drowning in images. So, you know, the the digital twenty four seven. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. Still in effect for her because we're still awash in images. So it's still the same. Thank you very much for making that point because I think that it. She does feel that she is living 24, that we all are, as you're saying. We're all living in the 24-7 world already in the television world and right. in the photographic, in the world of uh, the photographic image. Okay, well, I just bring it here. that So our negative, our reaction to the latest mass shooting, our fear that, you know, the mass shooting on Tuesday is going to become the mass shooting on Wednesday or Thursday. Um. Everything she says about the phenomenological or rather the emotional reaction that's part of the unfolding of the negative epiphany, I think it kind of explains how I hear, how I process most news items nowadays and how I dare say most of our listeners, viewers are processing news items. Uh, I felt grieved. I felt wounded. But very soon, a part of my feelings started to tighten. Something went dead. I so, don't know if we have this something that's still crying. Maybe that maybe that shows whoops. There you go. We had a technical glitch here. But I don't know. And you tell me. Uh, I'll stop here. But is something still crying in our modern experience in the negative epiphany? I don't know. But the other stuff, the cycling from grief to indifference and the routinization of that cycle of emotions which is, I think, a large part of what she's talking about in her description of the negative epiphany in response to the photographic image. I do think that we've normalized that, routinized it. It's become part of the, the digital culture regimen. Okay. Done. I, I think that you have literally led me by the hand to my little takeaway moment from this. Okay, I love so I'll respond. Happens. So thanks for making this easy. Um. As it relates to media coverage, to the news, um, I think what we have is a situation 
where the easy, instantaneous proliferation of the image, both on TV screens and the internet and your phone, right? Just all of the ways that we consume images has created a world where we have a population. And I let me be clear, I don't mean any of these as pejorative terms, right? I'm not, I'm yeah, not right, right, casting right. value. It is created a entire citizenry of cave dwellers who are looking at images or who can conjure images that they can identify with, that they can make arguments around and instantly, and, and listeners, I'm air quoting this next word here, instantly prove an argument or a position or a context that was never there to begin with because they're looking at a curated, a contextual um, creation. Even if it was a reality, it is no longer a reality. It was a moment that the minute it is photographed and printed somewhere else is something different, right? But what this does because of nostalgia and also because of the negative epiphany, we tend to think of nostalgia as a bittersweet moment, whereas the negative epiphany lacks that sweetness, right? Right. It still creates this moment where we feel we have an understanding or an appreciation or an apprehension of a moment. In other words, what these images do is they're very heavy on the pathos, but they absolutely fail to create empathy. And the lack of empathy is not due to a lack of trying. It is due to the fact that these are creations, not actual experiences. And I think that the ability to get over something, the fact that our experience and our reactions fade is connected to the fact, or is tied to the fact, I want to be careful with my words as best I can here, is tied to the fact that these experiences can never be shared because they're never they're they're always individual reactions it's 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 the the experience is not of an actual occur uh, is, is not of the thing that we think we're responding to it's 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 the reaction to uh, a creation nothing to add to your takeaway my take instead of do a takeaway or give a takeaway of my own i think i will end with a very brief reading of the final passage uh, the final paragraph. Oh, it's wonderful. Sure, pick some things from the final paragraph. Uh, so readers, listeners, viewers, rather, can um, can hear how Sontag approaches, you know, thinks about where she, her, so they will get a glimpse of her platonic moment. Like, so what is her critical stance on photography? And they can evaluate, uh, and our audience can sort of evaluate the, the value of uh, uh, can make their own assessment of the value of Sontag's critical posture. Um, the the arguments she uses or marshals to liberate herself from the cave, to lift herself above the uh, uh, above the world of common perception, uh, above the cave, the shadowed pictures. So at the end of her essay, she says she writes. Photography implies that we know about the world. This is what she has been sort of proving and trying to disprove or or question throughout the whole book, certainly this chapter. Photography implies that we know about the world if we accept it, if we simply accept it, I added that word, simply accept it as the camera records it. But that's the opposite of understanding. It's the opposite of knowledge, I would say. And I think that's what she's getting at. But this acceptance is the opposite of understanding, which starts from not accepting the world as it looks. That's the point where, for a moment at least, she is very strictly platonic, where she's saying, if you want to understand the world, don't be hypnotized by appearances. There is another kind of world, another kind of understanding that's deeper. And then she's explicit about what would help us understand if the photographic image isn't not more than a record, isn't 
isn't the the one privileged way, the one true way to achieve true knowledge, true understanding. So what's the counter to this? For Sontag, it's this. Functioning of an object or a relation takes place in time and must be explained in time. Only that which narrates, and I take her primary meaning of narration to be narration, obviously one of the functions of narration is to organize elements of a story and a plot in time, right? Orient these events within a specific time scheme. I'll repeat that sentence and bring it to a close. Bring, uh, this is how she brings her paragraph to a close. And functioning takes place in time and must be explained, explained in time. Only that which narrates can make us understand. Photography is not an understanding. Narration, understanding how things take place in time for Sontag is the tool to understanding, is the key to understanding. All right. That's her final word. It will be my final word. And I guess the final word of this podcast, unless you have other comments. Nope. I want to say thanks for a, another good discussion, Barry. I really, really enjoyed this one. And uh, you like this essay. I loved it, man. I think that it's so wonderful when something ages this brilliantly as well. I mean, this <laughs> was this, yeah. this was just it's a fun to read. So, yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's it. Hopefully we brought a little clarity and a little insight. And, um, you know, thanks for the chat. Thanks for the chat, Michael. Uh, a pleasure as always. Take care until All next right, time. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Critical Media Studies podcast. To find out more about the show, check out our webpage at criticalmediastudiespodcast.com. Thank you.